we have spoken about mental activity and we've seen that uh, mental activity the arising of a mental hologram and cognitive engagement with it changing from moment to moment always uh, has content and it is multi-part so the content uh, can be divided into the content of the mental hologram that is arising, that's the form aggregate, aggregate of forms of physical phenomenon. And then the, uh, and that can be multi-part, you know, changing all the time, depending on the sense and so on. And the, or it could just be mental when we have dreams or imagining things, visualizing things. The awareness side, on the other hand, is uh, going to be multi-part as well. And we've looked at uh, just uh, one feature of it, which is the primary consciousness, which uh, if we speak about the six main ones, these primary types of consciousness, those are the five sensory types of consciousness and mental consciousness. In addition, underlying that, we had foundation consciousness and the seventh consciousness. In the form aggregate, we had uh, sensibilia, so sense data. We had the uh, cells of the cognitive sensors, you know, our sensorial um, equipment, photosensitive cells of the eyes and so on. And uh, we also have uh, forms of physical phenomenon that can only be known by mental consciousness, like forms in dreams or sounds in dreams or physical sensations in dreams, these type of uh, things. Now, we uh, need to look at the other Factors, the other items that uh, make up the awareness side of uh, our mental activity. And these are known as uh, mental factors. Mental factors or subsidiary awarenesses. They are subsidiary. They are next to the primary consciousness. Using the example of the chandelier, we mentioned before primary consciousness is like the main big light in the middle and these other mental factors are around it coming together with it and like the little lights of the um, chandelier and these mental factors and there are a lot of them are uh, aware of their objects in special ways if you look at the defining characteristic, they're aware of it in special ways, uh, but without interpolating or repudiating anything. So that means that they don't project, you know, make up and project something onto uh, the object or deny something that's uh, uh, concerning the object. You know, what does that was our grasping for true existence. And 
various types of uh, grasping. Grasping for a truly existent self. I mean, there, there are several forms of this. So these mental factors don't do that. But they are aware of, and primary consciousness doesn't do that either. It doesn't interpolate. Interpolate is literally adding a feather at, on the end of an arrow. So it's adding something that's not there. They, some of them perform functions that help the primary consciousness to cognitively take or engage in the object, like attention or concentration or interest, and others add an emotional flavor to the taking of the object, you know, the engagement with the object. So these are the two most general type of functions that uh, they perform. They help the primary consciousness to connect with some object or stay focused on it, uh, pay attention to it, this type of thing, so quite mechanical. And the uh, others will add some emotional flavor to it. You know, love, compassion, anger, hatred, these type of uh, things. So a network of uh, mental factors accompanies each moment of our primary consciousness. So they're always there. Some items from uh, these mental factors are always there. There's a standard list of 51 that uh, we find in the Indian author Asanga's presentation. There are other presentations of it. In Theravada, Vasubandhu has another presentation. They overlap in many ways, but uh, a few things are added. Uh, a few things are left out. And what one needs to appreciate is that uh, these 51, if we look in, that's the uh, listing that we'll look at here. It's just uh, the main ones doesn't include everything. So the example that we can use for understanding that is if you have a very large pie, you can divide it into 51 pieces two ways. One is to divide the whole pie into 51 pieces, and the other is to divide part of the pie into 51 pieces, and then there's a lot left over. And this second example is uh, more fitting to the presentation of 51 mental factors. Because, for instance, they don't include compassion, for example. And obviously, compassion is a mental factor. So these are, and why they chose the 51 that are there uh, and left out some, I really have no idea. I've never seen an explanation of that. Yeah, you need the microphone. It would be good if you had the microphone. Does somebody have the microphone? I don't hear very well. The first time. Old man. Do I? Pardon? Yeah. Do you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay, so the first time I saw this list of mental factors was at a seminary at Rocky Mountain Shambhala Center. And there it was presented as a hundred. 
or 101 mental factors, but I can't remember where that came from. I have no idea. I've never heard of a list of 101. But there may be. Yeah. Why not? Why not? But I, there, that's not what we find in the standard Abhidharma texts. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody studies two Abhidharma texts, Abhidharma Kosha by Vasubandhu and Abhidharma Samuchya by Asanga. And those are the main things. Theravadins have their own Abhidharma. And then each of the 18 schools of, you know, the original Hinayana have their own Abhidharmas. So each of them have a different listing of these mental factors. And the Bhumpos have their own version of Abhidharma with mental factors, many of which correspond to the Buddhist ones and several of which are not included in the any of the Buddhist lists. So there are all these different presentations. Nothing special. Of course, you're going to have different presentations. Why not? You know, there are 84,000 dharmas. You know, 84,000 things that can be known. Dharma is something that holds its own essential nature. That is the definition. So a distinct thing without making it into a solid thing. 84,000 of them is the number that's usually mentioned in the sutra, so why not 101? (laughs) Good. I just got an email from somebody in Russia asking me, you know, is there a list of the (laughs) 84,000? I will have to disappoint him. So, anyway. Uh, As I said, a network of mental factors accompanies each moment of primary consciousness, and it shares five congruent features with the primary consciousness it accompanies. Congruent, you know, it's like, if you remember your high school geometry, you have congruent triangles, you know, that are sharing, you know, the same shape, uh, angles, stuff like that. So, reviving high school geometry, we can (laughs) use that word. Five things shared in common. So, they share the same reliance. So, they rely, remember, the analogy is the chandelier. So, the, you know, with the chandelier, the main bulb and the little bulbs around it all share the same electricity, and they're all focused on the same object, and so on. So, it's the same thing, a similar thing, analogous thing, with the mind, uh, the primary consciousness and mental factors, usually called mind and mental factors, but consciousness and mental factors. So, reliance, they both rely, all of them rely on the same cognitive sensor. So, cognitive sensor are the photosensitive, you know, this, 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 you know, like you have a sensor for the door, you know, that uh, senses when somebody comes and then it opens it or it turns on the light. So, we have sensors as part of our hardware of the body. So, they are photosensitive cells of the eyes, Ear, uh, sound sensitive of the ears, smell of the nose, taste of the tongue, 
physical sensation of uh, the body, except for fingernails and hair, uh, and hemorrhoids. You know that hemorrhoids don't have any <laughs> nerves in them. There's no physical sensation. That I won't tell you how I found that out. But uh, anyway, <laughs> they also don't have physical <laughs> sensation. little factoid to throw out at parties and so on. You can tell people. (laughs) For the mind, we say that the cognitive sensor is the immediately preceding moment of uh, mental activity. That uh, this is the uh, a the sensor is what's called the dominant, the dominant condition for it arising. So it is the dominant condition that affects whether it's going to be a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste. So the previous moment of mental cognition is going to determine that the next moment is going to be also mental. So the, is the, so the mental factors, whether we're talking about sense perception or we're talking about just thinking all the mental factors in the primary consciousness come from the share rely on the, the same thing the cognitive the same cognitive sensor uh, they uh, share the same object so they're aiming at the same focal object so let's say uh, photo uh, photo you know colored shapes you know little conglomerations of molecules or electromagnetic waves. They also give rise to the same mental aspects of the main, uh, the hologram. They all are giving rise together to uh, one mental hologram. And uh, they are occurring simultaneously. So all of them at the same time. And they are uh, the, te- the term for it is that they have the, na- the same natal source, which means that they come from, uh, it's interpreted here, as having the same slant. In other words, they work harmoniously together. So they all fit nicely together. In that sense, they uh, all share the same orientation. You know, you can't have love and, and hatred at the same time. You, know, you can say I have a love-hate relationship with you, but not exactly in the same one moment. Alternates. So this is uh, the mental factors. They share these five things in common. So the five congruent features. And uh, so digest that for a moment. I think the analogy of the chandelier is uh, quite helpful here. Okay. So there are five ever-functioning mental factors 
that accompany every moment of mental activity. Depending on the system, you can say there are ten that are uh, there all the time. But uh, in Asanga's presentation, the second set of five, he defines them very specifically just when they're focused on constructive phenomenon or when they are constructive. So he's uh, taking a special case. But uh, Vasubandhu explains them as all ten of them are there all the time. But uh, five are the most basic. And these five, two of them are constitute their own aggregates. And all the rest of them are thrown into the aggregate of other affecting variables. So these two are distinguishing and feeling a level of happiness. The reason for that is that uh, uh, craving after feelings of happiness causes disputes among householders. You know, they're fighting, you know, I don't like this and I want that and so on. I mean, this is coming out of the Abhidharma text. That uh, Why are these two specified as uh, their own individual type of uh, mental factor? So feeling is very important because householders argue about that. And it also, as I was explaining before, uh, because of uh, our craving after feelings, you know, that uh, happiness, so I want to make it secure, and unhappiness, I've got to get rid of it, that this activates karmic potentials. So that happiness uh, is made, in, that feeling some level of happiness or unhappiness is made into its own aggregate. And then distinguishing is uh, its own aggregate. The uh, reason that's given is that distinguishing this view of reality from that view causes disputes among monastics. So, uh, because lay people, householders argue about, you know, happiness, you know, money, it'll give me more happiness, so I want it, so they argue about that. And monastics are debating about philosophical views, so distinguishing one from another, that causes their arguments, so that is made into a, uh, an aggregate all by itself. And uh, also, it activates karmic potential, it's cause for further rebirth. So these two are made into aggregates by themselves. So our way of dividing the five aggregates is totally not symmetrical. As uh, one of my Rinpoche friends once said, symmetry is stupid. There's no reason why things should be symmetrical. So we have two aggregates that only have one item in them and one aggregate that has almost an, an unbelievable number of items in them. Okay? So, distinguishing. Distinguishing, which you said some people translate as perception, some people translate it as recognition, if you look at the definition, is that it focuses on a defining characteristic mark, defining characteristic feature of an appearing object of a mental hologram, and differentiates it 
from what is other than it. So when we have, and karmic argue has a very special explanation of uh, when it uh, is functioning and how it functions, but if we think in terms of, as they say, it's functioning and conceptual cognition. So if we think in terms of conceptual cognition, they limit it to that. When you are perceiving, when I'm looking, you know, I'm just seeing the electromagnetic waves, but my mind, you know, in a, a couple microsecond de- uh, delay, is making the appearance of whole objects. So all these bodies and people and other things that are uh, in my field of uh, uh, cognition. So distinguishing allows us to distinguish one object from another. If you couldn't do that, it would still almost remain, well, if we, well, how to explain it in the Kharkiv context, I know it in the in the Galupa context where you're, you're distinguishing colored shapes from other colored shapes. If you think of it in that level, how do I distinguish all the colored shapes that make up your face from the colored shapes of the people behind you in the wall? So the same thing if we limit it as in the Karmakaiku presentation to whole objects. Also, how do I distinguish this whole object from everything around it. Otherwise, you can't make sense of anything that you are, you are perceiving, anything that you are aware of. So this distinguishing is the most one of the most fundamental, basic mental factors. Without it, you can't possibly make any sense of a whole field of vision or a field of anything, you know, mental field or whatever. It allows us to distinguish one object Specify one object from everything else around it or anything else. That's why recognition doesn't work here. Recognition means that you knew it before. It doesn't have that. You know, an infant can distinguish hot and cold, hungry and not hungry. It doesn't mean that they have words for it or they recognize it or something like that. Light and dark can distinguish from each other. So it's very, very basic. Worms can do that. That's what distinguishing is about. Without it, no way of dealing with the world. Okay? Just that. That's what we're talking about with this aggregate. Remember, in the discussion of five aggregates, it has to apply to worms as well, not just humans. Yeah. Yeah. So this uh, uh, distinguishing. I don't think that's on. Okay. No, it's not. Yeah. I don't control it. He does. I see. So this uh, distinguishing has to do with very basic, like you said, hot or cold or dark or light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
without giving a name to it. It doesn't give a name to anything. I mean, it has there's a categories which are uh, which any sentient being would distinguish. That's what you're saying, also. Well, in the karma kargu usage of it, it involves categories. In other presentations, like the Glooper presentation, it doesn't necessarily imply categories at all. It's just distinguish color, this colored shape from that colored shape. Doesn't put it into any category and doesn't give it a word. But even in the Kargu presentation, it doesn't necessarily apply a word. But it's also distinguishing one category from another category. You know, the category of apples as opposed to the category of oranges. Cat or dog. Or dark from cold. Pardon? Dark from, you know. Dog also being distinguished from cold. You know, dog from anything not dog. Dog from dog? Pardon? Dog from dog, if you have two dogs? Dog from dog, uh, yes, there's the... There, there are two levels of distinguishing. There's distinguishing the categories. Categories have what are known as composite features, composite of all the items that are in it. So distinguishing dog, the, the category dog from the category cat. But then with specific items, distinguish one item from another item, right hand from left hand this dog from that dog. So it works on both levels. You have distinguishing with uh, what's called specifically characterized phenomenon, so specific items, and then you have distinguishing with um, sort of generally categorized phenomenon is the technical term, and that's categories. One is focused on an individual defining characteristic feature, and in categories it's focused on what I translate as a composite feature. Of course, it's a composite of the features of all the items that fit into dogs, lots of dogs. And then when we think of dog, then we have a mental picture that represents a dog for us. And everybody that thinks, you know, think of a dog, everybody's going to have a different mental picture of what represents a dog. It's very interesting. I find that a little confusing because uh, the categorization of hot and cold is, or dark and light, are very basic. And then dog is a kind of concept. Well, this is the whole point. In Karmakaryu, distinguishing is not manifest in sensory cognition, in non-conceptual cognition. In Galupa, it is manifest. Kargyu says, no, it's not manifest then. It's only manifest in terms of distinguishing whole objects from each other. And in conceptual cognition, let me just make sure that I have this correct. Uh, 
Right. Distinguishing does not occur, so it's unmanifest. You can't say that it, I mean, it's unmanifest. I mean, there's obviously continuity uh, during that microsecond of bare sensory cognition and the bare mental cognition. So that's just mental hologram of little patches of colored shapes. Then, when you have conceptual cognition and you have a mental synthesis of a whole object, like hand, then there is something that represents it. So if it's based on sensory cognition, it's pretty much an image that looks like, you know, visual. If I'm just thinking of it, also it's probably visual, although I could imagine what it feels like to have a handshake, that physical sensation, so it could be that type of mental hologram. Let's say if I'm blind. And... uh, there are um, so there's a mental representation and there's a category of hand so I'm distinguishing that uh, in terms of the mental representation I'm distinguishing this mental representation of a hand from the mental representation that I have of all of you in the background and the wall. Otherwise, I can't focus on the hand. And also, it's distinguishing the category of what kind of thing is this? Category is what kind of thing is this? It's a hand. I mean, it's in that category of hand. doesn't have to apply a name. I don't have to think hand in order to, you know, see a mental representation of a whole object. You don't have to have words, not at all. So the distinguishing doesn't attach a word to it. And it's only in the next moment, according to the Karmakagyu explanation, that you have grasping for true existence, that it truly exists in this box of the category and the dualistic appearance of me as the consciousness looking at it. Truly existent me on this side and truly existent object on the other side that I'm looking at dualistically. So that comes in the next moment. But just with the distinguishing itself, it allows for our dealing with the hand. You know, I have a splinter in my hand. I mean, you have to to see it. And we see it mixed with a conceptual construct of a whole object. Do you follow that? More or less. More or less. Yes. But this is a very special assertion of Karmakarkyu. That distinguishing only functions in, uh, you know, that it's not manifest in our sense perception. Yeah. 
and then the mental sort of little thing that that, that helps transfer it from sensory to mental. Yeah. So when you describe it like this, it sounds like you're describing some temporal sequence or something happening in order. But That's correct. It is a temporal sequence. But is it uh, always true? <coughs> For me, it sometimes appears like something that just all happens at once. <laughs> but maybe that's... Uh, yes, it appears as though it's all happening at once because we're talking about microseconds. Yeah, so you still think there is an... That's the way it's explained in the text, yes. But a microsecond, I mean, when they say one moment, one moment is defined as one sixty-fourth of the time of a finger snap. It's the textual definition of it. So it's pretty fast. That's a crucial point when it comes to some other features of our presentation. There are certain things that uh, are sensory perception. It's just too fast for it to be able to, the word is ascertain, to uh, know, know it with certainty. There's this one way of knowing called uh, I translate it as uh, indeterminate cognition. Something appears, it arises, but you can't determine it with certainty. That's sometimes translated as inattentive attention, which is just not right in terms of the defining characteristic. It's not that you don't pay attention to it. It's just that it's so fast, there's no certainty. Yeah. Yeah, from the wall. From the wall, and you don't put a name on it? Mm -hmm. You just put it in category. But doesn't that category have a name? The category doesn't... You call it a hand, but you don't distinguish it as a hand. You just distinguish it as something else than the wall. In that first moment of conceptual cognition... As far as I understand, there is the conceptually constructed whole object, and together with that, there is the, you know, that is the, what is it called? Something like collection um, synthesis. So it's not just, you know, something that appears to include all the sensory data, but also that extends over time. Because remember, you know, only one moment happens at a time. So that's a synthesis like that. And there's also a synthesis of it is some kind of thing. That's the category. It's some kind of thing. So that comes there together. And it's only the next moment that makes that kind of thing, that category, into a box. And this, you know, fits into that. You know, for me, it's a hand. For, you know, the tiger, it's food. 
So we can put it into different categories, but it's some kind of thing. So that's it fits. There is some category. Everything is some kind of thing. That's this kind synthesis. It's called. Uh, would that be like if you are in a, in a new different culture and you see an object that you distinguish as something else than the wall, but you don't have the concept for it? Right. You distinguish it. You do. This is a very interesting point. Let's see. Let's say that you go to a. you see a mango for the first time. You have no idea what it is, but you can certainly distinguish it from the table or from somebody's hand. And you know that it's some kind of thing, but you don't know what. So it fits into some general category. Maybe you have a general category of fruit, or something to eat. But this is, I mean, now, now you start to get into very, very interesting stuff when you talk about uh, babies. How does a baby learn the category of edible and not edible? Baby puts everything in its mouth. So it has to learn by exclusion that this is not edible. And everything that is left over is edible. So categories are actually based on exclusions of everything that doesn't fit into the category. That's what's left over, because you can't actually point to the category. Where is it? Metaphysical is how I translate the word not actually physical, a category. So we see this thing. We don't know what it is. We certainly don't know the name for it, mango. But we know that it's some kind of thing, and maybe we fit it into the category of edible object or fruit, but not the specific category. You know, you see a mongoose for the first time. I know it's an animal, but I have no idea what it is. Never seen it before. So this whole thing of how babies learn, that's really quite fascinating if you look at it from a Buddhist analytical point of view. Yeah. Uh, I have a follow-up, because I think in this uh, world we're living in, where people are migrating all over, Mm-hmm. People have to migrate, and uh, and uh, when they come to us, you have to learn with people to know. And then, if we understanding, we can understand how difficult it is on both sides to understand each other. Correct. And concept, you remember, mm-hmm. it is difficult when we have different categories for things. Mm-hmm. But then the question is the definition of the category. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, politeness. Well, what we consider polite in Europe and what somebody from an Asian or Middle Eastern country considers polite would be very different. 
You know, it's not polite to eat with your left hand or to give somebody something with your left hand. In many Asian and Middle Eastern cultures, in our culture, that isn't considered. That doesn't fit into the category of polite. So categories have different definitions, different composite defining characteristics, and that's the problem. You know, what is appropriate conduct between men and women? That's a big one in terms of what is the defi- what fits into that category. And different cultures, different people will define them differently. And that causes an awful lot of trouble. In Europe, also maybe in Germany, the handshake, the, the demand that uh, Muslim has, a Muslim has the handshake with opposite sex. I really couldn't understand what you and, said. Uh, when you greet someone, right? In, uh, these days in our culture, you have to greet with a hand. Right. When I was a newly educated teacher, it was uh, it was bourgeois to greet with a hand. You should only say hi. Right. But these days, when you meet a Muslim who greets with the hand of the heart, right, it is seen as offensive. Right. If you, if a man cannot greet, right. Man. Greetings are terribly confusing uh, categories. What's appropriate and what's inappropriate, especially the uh, so-called kiss on the cheek. Yeah. How many times? Do you kiss? And do your lips actually, is it some cultures it's once, and some cultures it's twice on both, you know, once on each cheek, some cultures it's three, there's some that even is four, and if you do it the incorrect number of times, then it means something else, and, you know, should your lips touch the person's uh, cheek or not, that's a variable. Uh, is it accompanied by a loud sound, mwah, you know, mwah, uh, like that? Uh, all of this, I know I've gotten into a lot of trouble in uh, traveling around in many, many different countries of uh, not knowing what is appropriate. I ask. That's the best way. Ask what is appropriate. And for sure, a handshake is not appropriate in some Middle Eastern cultures, for sure. It's not. And now a lot of people hug each other. So at what point in knowing somebody do you hug them when you see them? That also, very. And individuals will have their own... That's the the problem with these categories. There are general categories... I mean, there's a whole list of 80 of them, actually, that are universal. Like, uh, and it has to do with certain instinctive, they're almost instinctive, they would be, and they're different for different species, you know. So the category of uh, uh, that when you're happy, you smile. That's a category. You know, of a of a type of action that you do, uh, or uh, for a dog, it would be wag your tail. I mean, we don't have that one as humans. <laughs> so there are these, you know, univer- you know, it's sad crying. Uh, the instinct to suck as a baby. 
These are general ones. And then we have our personal concepts. So there are levels of, you know, of these categories and conceptual things. There's individual personal ones. You know, the category of my mother and, you know, the mental image that if I think of my mother, I would have, you know, memories fit into that. And then there are, of course, uh, more uh, universal instinctive categories. Very interesting. Very sophisticated. Anyway, let's go on. That is distinguishing. Distinguishing is not the same as recognition. It uh, does not apply a word or a name. It just enables us to focus on one object within a cognitive field. Distinguishing one object from another object. So that is specifying in a sense. It's associated with specifying deep awareness okay that or individualizing sometimes called individualizing deep awareness individualize something distinguish it from everything else that's not it then the next one is feeling a level of happiness feelings refer to happiness unhappiness or neutral feeling some of these you know so for our normal, ordinary experience, in each moment we're going to have some level on the spectrum between happiness and unhappiness. When we talk about neutral feeling, we are not talking about the point exactly at the middle. Although you might think that that's what neutral refers to. It's not referring to that. It's referring to after you have achieved shamatha, you know, perfect concentration, stilled and settled mind, and then you go deeper and deeper into the so-called dhyanas. And as you go deeper, certain mental factors become non-manifest. And when you reach the fourth dhyana, at that point, the feeling that you experience is neutral. It's no longer happiness or unhappiness, neither physical nor mental. So neutral is referring to that. And then above that or deeper than that, the four formless absorptions. They're accompanied by neutral feeling. So that's what neutral is referring to. So for us regular people, that's something we would never feel. So if we think in terms of a spectrum of happiness to unhappiness, it doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't, doesn't have to be dramatic. It's there, very subtle level, all the time. You know, we don't have time, but there is... You know, it's very good to spend time trying to identify each of these aggregates. Distinguishing, I think we can, it's pretty easy to distinguish it. <laughs> you know, I can tell the difference between when I'm looking at this group of people, one body from another body, they don't just all merge into one object. 
do they? So that's quite easy to know what we're talking about. Feeling a level of happiness or unhappiness is a little bit more subtle because for many of us, we say, oh, I don't feel anything. Well, that's not quite true. It just means that I'm not paying attention to what I'm feeling. It doesn't mean that you're not feeling anything. And it's indicated by the fact that you move your head. You know, you stop looking at this thing, and now you look at something else. I'm not happy with it. That's unhappiness. Very, very low level. And if I stay looking at something, I'm happy about it. I'm happy to stay there. I don't want it to change. I'm looking at it. So happy and unhappy, in most cases, is very, very subtle. Happiness is defined as that feeling which, when it arises, you would like for it to continue. You don't want to be parted from it. doesn't mean that you're making it into something special and a big thing. That's craving. But just, you know, fine, okay, I, you know, it's nice, happy. You know, watching this thing on the YouTube or whatever, I'm not going to change it. You look to somewhere else, you move your head, you listen to something else, you're unhappy, you didn't like it, you don't want it anymore. Ha- unhappiness, that feeling which when it arises, you want to be parted from it. Again, not making it necessarily into a monster. We're talking about just the basic, fundamental thing. And if we ever achieve these deep, deep meditations, neutral, you either want it to continue or not continue. You're too absorbed to really care about it. It's only when you make it into a thing that then it's described as, you know, not wanting it to degenerate. You don't want it to go away. Okay. So, we can identify it, what we're feeling. That requires, you know, really being very sensitive. And feeling is defined as the way in which we experience the ripening of our karma. A very interesting definition. That's the definition. How do you experience the ripening of your karma? In other words, without feeling some level of happiness, we are not experiencing anything. This is the major difference between a mind and a computer. Computer has almost all of the features of mind. But a computer doesn't experience anything. A computer crashes and it doesn't feel unhappy about that. It doesn't swear when it crashes. And it doesn't feel happy when it's working well. And that's the difference. A computer doesn't build up you know, negative karma by crashing all the time. Doesn't work like that. So how do we feel? We, you know, what are we experiencing? How do we experience the aggregate factors with which we are born? 
You know, we talk about you know what ripens from karma, it, it, from our karmic potentials. Really, it's not directly from karma. It's from the karma aftermath, the potentials, tendencies, and so on. So, your body, intelligence, talents, personality, and the aggregates in each moment. How do you experience it? So, when we talk about what ripens from the karmic potentials, it's not that, let's say you're hit by a car. My karmic potentials don't cause me, don't cause you to hit me with your car. That's a terrible, mistaken view of guilt. Your karmic potentials cause you to hit me with a car. My karmic potentials cause me to experience being hit by a car. When you look at the discussion of what ripens from karma, the word experience is always there. I'm experiencing that. Something caused me, you know, some tendency to be hit by a car caused me that urge came up then because I was distracted or something like that to cross the street without looking. Bam, I'm hit by a car. And how do I experience that? You experience that with unhappiness. You don't experience being hit by a car with happiness. Oh, I'm so happy. I was just hit by a car. It's experienced with unhappiness. Remember, happiness and unhappiness is not the same as pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain are physical sensations. Those are forms of physical phenomenon. It's a very important point. A lot of people confuse happiness and unhappiness with pleasure and pain. They're different. Happiness is, and unhappiness is how you experience physical things like sights, sounds, or sensations like pleasure or pain. You know, if you do a lot of hard physical training, you feel pain afterwards, and you're happy about that. Because that means that I really had a good workout, and I'm really building my muscles. So you can feel happy at, at pain. And then you can feel happy or unhappy mentally when you're thinking of something. Yeah, you had a question. Yeah. Mm. It was about the experience of the karmic uh, being hit by the car or hit in the... Yeah. Uh, are, we, are we then supposed to learn from this? Does Pardon? It, does it have a function? Are does it have a function? Do, are we supposed to learn from this or is it just an experience? Is there something to learn from it? This is a... (laughs) I think you find it in theosophy uh, and maybe some other Western philosophical things that is views, which is that basically God has given you lessons to learn and I can't go on to the next stage of my development until I learn the lesson. That's not Buddhism. Can we learn something from it? Yes. Learn to look both ways before you cross the street, for example. But it isn't that God made me be hit by a car so that I could learn to look both ways. So you learn your lesson, you deserve that. Bad boy, bad girl. 
not like that. Yeah. With karma. With what? I couldn't understand the word you said. I couldn't distinguish it. I heard a sound. I could not. I knew it it meant something, but I didn't know what it meant. It was just a sound. Uh, There's a Japanese author called Haruki Murakami. Yeah. He's a marathon runner. Yeah. He says that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Right. Suffering is unhappiness. Yeah. I mean, well... This is just a comment on the distinguishing between pain and pleasure and happiness and unhappiness. Right. And you could experience pleasure and be very unhappy about it because you feel, I don't deserve it. A very unfortunate state of mind to think like that. So they don't necessarily go together. Pleasure and happiness and pain and unhappiness. So what happiness or unhappiness, how we experience what's happening to us, how we experience, you know, so our aggregates, what you're born with, you know, some deformity or some, you know, great intelligence or great strength or whatever. Your body, oh, I'm so strong or I'm so weak. I get sick all the time. So how you experience that, that's the ripening, you know, the the aggregates themselves, how we uh, experience the environment in which we live, how we experience uh, an environment means, you know, not just ecology, but, you know, everything around us, how we experience the uh, compulsively wanting to repeat our previous patterns of behavior. You know, compulsive chocolate eater. And maybe I'm not very happy about that. Or maybe I am very happy about that. But compulsively, you repeat certain patterns of behavior. So how you experience that, happiness, unhappiness, uh, and uh, getting into situations where things happen to us similar to what we did to others. That also ripens. So if uh, we always uh, cause division by slandering, by saying bad things about someone, so it causes them, you know, their friends to leave them and so on. We experience as a result of that um, our relationships always end. People leave us. Which actually does make sense. If we're saying bad things about, you know, this other person, then our friends will think, well, what is he saying about me behind my back? So it actually does make sense in terms of uh, what happens to us 
similar to what we caused others. So how you experience that as well. So we experience these things happening, and the feeling is how we experience it. Sort of the, well, the feeling that we have with that. That's the feeling aggregate. Okay? So we have distinguishing, we have forms of physical phenomenon, we have consciousness. This consciousness is the form of physical object, so it's the, the object, the mental hologram. Consciousness has the primary consciousness, what, you know, is it a sight, is it a sound, and so on. And distinguishing, you know, when we, the conceptual consciousness constructs it into a whole common sense object, then distinguishing, able to distinguish one from another, and feeling some level of happiness or unhappiness. Right? We're not talking here about which categories are going to be, we're going to fit, let's say, when we see somebody, fit them into. That becomes very interesting. This is where concepts, our Western idea of concept, comes in. They are something, you know, the most general category is a knowable object. You know, the the, the knowable object. Fine, so what kind of knowable object? So it can be human being, but we can also fit them into the have throw you know attach on the category of friend or the category of someone I don't like category of good person category of bad person category of annoying pest um, all sorts of categories these are the categories with which we then further elaborate in the conceptual cognition. These categories are not part of the aggregates. Because they're static. They don't do anything. But by believing, because truly, you know, grasping for truly established existence makes them that they appear as though they really exist in that box. They really are, from their own side, established as an annoying person or me I'm truly established as a loser category of somebody that nobody likes this type of thing then you get all sorts of disturbing emotions and so on that is more what we talk about when we talk about concepts So that just is, you know, the box that you put it in. So ideally, either don't put it in a box or change the box. You know, this person annoying me, 
is now you put them in the box, this is lojung, mind training, the box of my teacher, they're teaching me patience. Or the box of a cranky baby. You change the box. It's attitude training, mind training. So if you understand how the mind works, how mental activity works, you know all these strategies that we can use to change our experience. And we also understand that nobody exists truly in any box. So just because you might think I'm a loser, that doesn't mean that I'm a loser. You've put me in that box. I'm not in that box. I could put my, you know, think of myself in a different box. You know, I'm God's gift to the world, or I'm whatever. All these boxes, you know, there are some which are conventions, like human being, you know, that's pretty basic. And that's the box, for instance, that His Holiness the Dalai Lama puts everybody in when he meets them. A human being. Every human being wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be unhappy. No difference. Everybody's the same in that respect. Rather than putting them in the box of the nationality or the religion or gender or an age or anything like that. So, this is a very important lesson that these boxes, these categories are optional. You can change them. That's mind training. Lojong. Very basic teaching. Okay. And that's very important in our feelings about our, our, you know, attitude about ourselves and attitudes about others. Very important. Okay? Now, we've had distinguishing and feeling a level of happiness. Uh, the uh, and consciousness and forms of physical phenomenon. So now we have the last aggregate to discuss. As I said, it's not the standard order of them. It is the uh, other affecting variables, everything else. So let's look at the three remaining of the five ever-functioning mental factors. Remember, the five include distinguishing and feeling a level of happiness. So the first one is an urge. We've already discussed that a bit. It is defined as the main mental factor that affects, affects means moves, the mental activity and what sets it in motion causing it to go towards something specific. And in the Asanga's auto-commentary to this, he says that it is, uh, it co- it's like the movement of a piece of iron caused by a magnet. So, mind, like, it's, it's you know, compelling. The urge that just draws the whole package of the primary consciousness and uh, other mental factors, it draws with them 
to the object, like a piece of iron being drawn to a magnet. And depending on the strength of our habit and so on, it could be very strong or it could be weaker. All of these mental factors are variables. Remember, they can have a whole spectrum of strength and various things that we can do to strengthen them or weaken them. So that is an urge and it uh, causes it to go towards something specific. It can go toward the tiny colored shapes in non-conceptual cognition, sensory cognition. Or it uh, can go toward the mentally, conceptually synthesized common sense whole object. So that we can... the the mind, mental activity can engage in some way with the object. So this is an urge. It's very, very basic. And it can draw one into an object to focus on an object and then do something with it. It's karma. So act toward it. Speak to it. Think about it. Something like that. So it draws us into an action. Draws us into just focusing on an object as well. You understand that? So, so. What is unclear? Yeah, you have a, a question. Can you pass the microphone, please? It's not on. You probably turned it off when you put the squish. If you turn it off, then it will take time before it starts again. So please just leave it on. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering about uh, this uh, that you said about karma. Uh, I just wondered if, for example, we're sitting here and then the roof falls down. Is it? Uh, is that would that be necessarily the result of someone's karma or? Can it be just things that happen as well? Oh, I don't remember the list. I'm sorry. But there is a list of uh, certain things that are not karma. And gravity is not karma. So it is, there are certain forces. There's a list of, I think, five of them we find in the Theravada Sutra Nigamas, I think they're called. Something like that. I really don't recall the, the, the list. I'm sorry. I think it was the activity of the uh, sensors to, to be able to sense you know, data. But one of them had to do with just physical objects. So throwing a ball up in the air when there's gravity, like on the earth, not on you know, not in space, that it comes back down. That's not karma. Karma is based on, you know, it wasn't that we trained the ball to come back down. Whereas karmic motion, karmic action, is uh, based on previous 
habits. So then it becomes compulsive. I think the key word in understanding karma is compulsive. It's compelling. We don't have any control over it. At least that's the way that we experience it. The only way that we can deal with it is when it occurs that the thought comes up compulsively the thought comes up to think about yelling at you or embracing you you know saying something nice to you or something nasty to you that thought comes up then there's the mental action of considering it so there's the urge to think that that is pretty compulsive you know they don't really have you know just sort of came up triggered by something you know I saw you and then that mental action reaches its finale when I make the decision that I'm going to say something to you or greet you or something that's where there is this gap between when you've made that decision and when the urge draws you into actually saying something or doing something that's where you can stop it or in the consideration in the mental action of making a decision should I say it or not you can decide not so this is where you can break it now there are certain other things that certain types of uh, behavior that you get into without having thought about it before like dancing with you and stepping on your foot I didn't plan to step on your foot but there was an urge that drew me into the action of stepping on your foot that is very difficult to uh, break unless you have you know great carefulness not to do that so there's this distinction between uh, actions that are thought out before and actions that are not thought out before yeah so the actions that are thought of before they're the karmic ones no both of them are karmic the difference has to do with uh, the uh, um, time span of when the they will ripen if it's thought out before it will have a definite time of when it will ripen referring to either in this lifetime immediately following lifetime or some lifetime after that if it is what we'd say non-deliberate action then there's no certainty it will ripen at some time but there's no certainty of when specifically there's some very heavy actions that will ripen in this lifetime there is a specific set of actions like killing your mother killing your father that you go to some horrible hell realm immediately the next lifetime and then there are actions that will definitely ripen in some lifetime after that you know you have killed your mother or your father you have a hell rebirth but you've also built up the karma that will definitely ripen at some time uh, in, that, in a lifetime after that, like to be reborn as a human again. 
So that would re, would be a a karmic thing, you know, and it all depends on how strong the motivation is. Many other factors, but that's the main one. How strong that motivation is when you do something, and how you know who you're doing it to. There's a difference between killing your mother and stepping on an ant. So uh, there's that, and then these things that are not deliberate. There's no certain. It's not a definite time of when it could will ripen. Could ripen millions of lifetimes later. Depending on whether or not you reinforce it. If I keep on stepping on your foot, well, that starts to become heavier than if I only do it once and regret it. Well, I'm sorry, I stepped on your foot. I'll try to be more careful. Karma gets very complicated, but uh, it is possible to unravel all the different pieces that are involved. Anyway, urge. Then there is a, so a mental urge. You know, it's a mental factor. It moves the. Uh, we talk about mental. You know, the urge for a mental action, the urge for a physical action, the urge for a verbal action. So the urge will bring us into focusing on an object and doing something with it. Then there is uh, paying attention. Paying attention or taking to mind is literally what it is. It's the mental factor that differentiates an object as an object of focus and thus enabling the mental activity to cognize it. It differentiates an object as an object to focus on and enables the mental activity to focus on it, cognize it. So that's attention, paying attention to something. So the urge brings us there. But this is paying attention, it differentiates it, and distinguishing is distinguishes this object from another object. And now attention is going to enable it. It differentiates it. Well, this is what I'm going to focus on, having distinguished it from other things. So that's paying attention. And the paying attention, you know, taking it to mind literally, can be many varieties. It could be um, momentary. You know, in each moment you have this differentiated in the uh, instructions for shamatha, for learning to concentrate. So every moment that, you know, your attention goes away, you bring it back. Or repeated attention, you know, you bring it back over and over again. Or really painstaking attention that, you know, you really make an effort to put your focus on it, or uh, uh, effortless attention. So there are these different types of attention, and we can pay a lot of attention to something, or very little attention to something. So this is a variable. Also involved with it is how we consider things, how you pay attention to it. 
And that is correct consideration or incorrect consideration. To consider something which is by um, nature suffering as happiness. Or something which by nature is uh, impure as pure. Or impermanent as permanent. Changing as static. There's that way of, there's also, so there's also a way of paying attention to something. So all of that is involved with this mental factor, and it's there all the time. If you don't pay attention to something, you're not going to take it as an object of focus. It hasn't come to my attention, we would say. Whereas the Buddhist thing is that the attention goes to it rather than it comes to my attention. Okay? That's paying attention. And the fifth one is called contacting awareness. Sometimes you hear it just translated as contact, which is very misleading because that's a physical thing. Contact. We're talking about a mental factor. So it's contacting awareness, and it differentiates the object of cognition or the concept as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I see... You know, my mind is constructed into a whole object, a... uh, smelly French piece of cheese and I that my contacting awareness with that is unpleasant and it is the cause for or the basis I should say for feeling unhappy I don't like smelly cheeses I see a piece of Norwegian goat cheese and the contacting awareness is pleasant. This has to do with what you like and what you don't like, basically, is what this is all about. I love Norwegian gold cheese, so I experience it with happiness. So this is contacting awareness. It is the uh, foundation, it serves as the foundation, this is its... uh, Uh, Function serves as the foundation for experiencing that object with feeling of happiness, unhappiness, or neutral feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant. Pleasant is the word that literally means it comes to mind. So it goes to your mind easily. Unpleasant is it doesn't go to your mind easily. You know? This type of Thing when you see something you don't like. And obviously that's based on many factors, isn't it? You know, we could say from previous lives, you know, you're sort of born with that. Some people don't like to be touched. Or some people like to touch everything. Why is it that you like vanilla or you like chocolate. 
So the, our previous habits, you could be influenced by your parents. You know, my mother would serve me certain things that she didn't like, and she was like, you know, eat this. <laughs> you know, so you could be taught that this is not something really very nice. You eat your vegetables, you know, this type of, your broccoli or whatever it might be. It can be influenced by society. In Thailand, eating insects is really cool, very nice. Eating insects, you know, a fried grasshopper here in the West would, or beetle, fried beetle would be quite unpleasant. Contacting awareness. It's very interesting when you start to analyze what do we like and what don't we like and why. But it's because of that, these tendencies and so on, that uh, we experience it as unpleasant, and then the karma ripens of rejecting it, you know, and feeling unhappy. You know, I don't want to eat that. Or give me more. Greed. That comes in. So these are our five ever-functioning mental factors. They're there in every single moment. Although this special karma kargyu uh, assertion is that distinguishing, but distinguishing is referring to, and this I don't know, I'm not sure of, whether it is unmanifest during conceptual, during non-conceptual cognition, or it's just being defined in terms of distinguishing whole conventional objects, and that actually there is distinguishing one colored shape from another colored shape. This I really don't know. I've not seen a, a detailed analysis of it. It could work in both ways. And undoubtedly, there are some masters who have described it one way and some who have described it another way, inevitably. When there's, two, when there's two plausible explanations, undoubtedly somebody has asserted one and somebody has asserted the other. That's Tibetan Buddhism. Welcome to the world of debate of Tibetan Buddhism. But uh, in each moment then, if we're dealing with whole objects then, then we have uh, always there is a distinguishing this object from everything else, you know, in the background, and feeling some, uh, and uh, um, the urge that moves the consciousness to, you know, that object based on paying attention to it, you know, that it specifies, you know, this is something to go toward, and the urge brings it to it, and the contacting awareness is it's pleasant, Unpleasant, you experience the whole thing as pleasant, unpleasant. We shouldn't use the word experience, but uh, that, you know, that's how it is. Well, experience is the only word. And then you experience it, you know, with happiness or unhappiness. Some level, which then causes you to continue paying attention to it or to turn your attention to something else. If you turn your attention to something else, you didn't like it anymore, became unpleasant. It's an unpleasant 
contacting awareness. This video is boring. It's stupid. I don't like it anymore. It turns to something else. Right? Those are the five ever-functioning ones. Yes? And of those five, as I said, feeling is its own aggregate, distinguishing is its own aggregate, and then urge, paying attention, and contacting awareness are in the this big network of other affecting variables. There's going to be a lot more, but we'll speak about them tomorrow. Uh, I have this um, notion of this uh, particular subject on the light and of this light. And, uh, this particular subject of what? You're talking about the liking and disliking. Liking and disliking, yeah. So say you're walking down the street yeah. and you have all these things around you. Uh-huh. And uh, so there must be almost like too much information to comprehend. Like you, you see things that you like and dislike and are neutral about uh-huh. around you. Like, right. Uh, like a massive, massive wave coming like all the time, right? Uh-huh. Would you sort of agree to that? That this is something you're not really aware of at all? It's just like happening all the time at some level. Um, it's just too much to, to, to actually... Uh, it's almost out of our capacity to actually be aware of how much we do. That's right. That's right. Uh, When somebody has autism, uh, usually that's described as uh, not being able to filter the information. And so it's too overwhelming, all the information that's going on at the same time. That's usually... One of the descriptions of autism, thus have I heard. I'm not a psychologist. But uh, that's why these mental factors are very important. Within all of that information, you know, I'm looking, I'm, you know, I'm seeing the electromagnetic uh, waves from this room, right? And so now my uh, uh, there is the first a hologram of just colored shapes, you know, of uh, uh, these, these, you know, so it's transformed into some sort of display, mental hologram, and now conceptual, I mentally construct objects. So now there are these objects, these things. So what am I going to pay attention to? Now, I could pay attention to what clothes everybody is wearing, for example. Or I pay no attention to that whatsoever. I don't distinguish it. I don't distinguish it. I don't pay attention to it. And I certainly don't remember what you were wearing yesterday. Because I didn't pay attention to it. You know, that has to do with regard. Do you regard it as, that's another mental factor that we'll get to, do you regard it as important or not? I don't care what you're wearing. For somebody who's into fashion, they care very much what you're wearing. So, 
that attention, the distinguishing, you know, I can distinguish one person for another, but I'm not really distinguishing what you're wearing from other things that you could be wearing. I'm not paying attention to it, and so my focus doesn't go there. And there's no urge from my previous habits of really being concerned about fashion to really notice what you're wearing. So these factors help us to filter information so that we don't get overwhelmed with trying to be aware of everything. A Buddha is aware of everything. And not overwhelmed with it like uh, somebody with autism. You know, the mind is capable, mental activity is capable of being aware of everything. That's called omniscience. We have limited hardware. Our bodies are limited, and because the bodies are limited, the mental activity is limited. Even worse, if we're a fly, you know, reborn in a fly body with a fly brain. It's very interesting with flies, now that we get on the topic of flies, and we have a little bit of time left over. Did you know that the speed of consciousness in a fly mind, brain, and fly eyes is very different from the speed of uh, cognition in human apparatus. So there's a certain number of frames, as it were, that if you take, you know, in in a second, let's say, we might have, well, 64 finger snaps. Well, a fly might have 200 or something. I don't know the exact number. But a fly has much more. And so when you try to catch a fly in your hand, which many of my Tibetan friends are quite good at, they find it quite amusing to do in India, then for us, the fly moves incredibly quickly. How is it able to do that? It's because from a fly's perspective, there are, let's say, 200 frames when for us there's only 64. So it seems to the fly that the motion is slow motion. And so the fly is able to react much more quickly than a human. So this is indicative of the influence of the cognitive sensors, the hardware Fly hardware is far superior in that respect than human hardware, but not so superior in other respects. Yeah, can you? Yeah, and it's uh, possible to exploit the, 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 that slow motion feeling of flying. Uh, because it, if you move really, really slow, then the fly will experience it as a standing still. So if you want to catch a fly, you can just move your hand very, 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 very slow, and you can come all the way close and just boop. Ah, so the art of fly catching is uh, very slowly. What I, oh, you know, flies also, fly eyes also have panoramic vision. They can see, 
you know, uh, a much wider set, uh, field of vision than uh, human eyes, you know, because it's uh, multi-prismatic. But if you come up from behind a fly and your hand is moving in the direction in which the fly will fly off, you have a much better chance of catching it in your hand than uh, if you approach it in the direction that you know is right in front of it. But yes, there are many strategies for catching <laughs> flies in your hand. What you have to be very careful of is not squeezing too hard. <laughs> then that's rather unfortunate for the fly. <laughs> so, anything else? <laughs> Yes. So that you that you want to capture this fly, is that some kind of urge or tendency? Yes, that is an urge. Either you want to capture the, and then again, the emotion that you know accompanies the motivation. It's part of the motivation is crucial, and the intention, what you plan to do with the fly. If you want to catch it. In order to, you know, uh, you have invaded my space. You are a space invader, and you are an unacceptable life form in my space, in my room. And I'm going to throw you out the window, even though it's minus 10 degrees outside, you know. Good luck. So I'm going to throw you out the window. That's one intention. So you could, but also... You know, my Tibetan friends catch it. They think it's great fun. They shake it up and, uh, you know, make it dizzy. And then they let it go. And it flies and it's very dizzy. And then they laugh and laugh. They think that this is great fun. So that's a very different emotion. You know, that's just thinking that they're amusing. It's fun. I'm going to play. Play with the flies. And then there could be to capture it in order to kill it. Going to capture it and crush it in my hand because I don't like flies. Dirty. Put them in the box, the category of dirty. But it's an urge that, that brings you there. So you have to differentiate the urge from the intention, what you plan to do with it, and the uh, emotion that accompanies that. I also have a very different uh, question and maybe that's a bit tracking off, uh, I don't know, but when you talked about urge, uh, something that came to my mind was uh, if you have seen a person with Tourette syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, a person that, uh, uh, for example, will tend to stand up and swear repeatedly mm-hmm. or something like that, and you also see such person tend to do that more when they are excited. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder, that's maybe more into psychology, but uh, uh, if there's some relationship with that and this phenomena of urge... Yes, that is the urge that comes up. Urge, from a karmic point of view, is compelling. You have no control over it. And so the type of urges that will come up are based on previous behavior, either in this lifetime or in previous lifetimes. So, someone with Tourette syndrome has very, very strong urges. Very, you know, the, the strength of the compelling urge can be little or very strong. 
we can understand that with the simple thing of when you notice an itch, how you know how strong is the urge to scratch it? You know, we might might be just a small urge. You know, okay, I'll you know I'll deal you know I'll deal with it. You know, let's say when you're meditating. But it might become so strong that that urge you can't control it, and then you just scratch it. So the urges will have different strengths. But with the Tourette syndrome, it is so strong that it has absolutely no control. And what is repeating is undoubtedly something that was built up in previous lives. And the more excited you are, if you look at it in terms of the subtle energy system, the energy is moving more strongly with more force. So there is, you know, with the karmic urge, there is a certain energy that's with it as well. Another way of looking at it, the physical basis. So then it becomes stronger, more compelling. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Uh, going back to the fly, um, I think is it possible for an urge to change during your lifetime? You know, for example, I would, you know, 20 years ago, I would kill the fly, you know, just because it annoyed me. Right. Now I will get annoyed with people killing flies. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of an urge. That's, you know, it's it's it's, an urge. it's still an urge because I get really annoyed with people killing flies because it's right. unnecessary. But 20 years ago, I would, I would, st- I would have my own urge to kill the fly. Right, so well, change the perspective. yes, we can change which karmic impulses will, which karmic tendencies will ripen uh, very much in terms of the categories with which we perceive the fly you can perceive it as a pest, put it in that category, or perceive it in the in the uh, category. I remember when my favorite uncle died, and then there was this fly that you know was always landing on my face, and no matter how much I shoot it away, landed on my face. And so then I started to wonder, maybe this is my uncle who's now reborn as a fly. And, you know, recognizes me, you know, some instinctive type of thing and wants to make contact. So looking at it as my, the reincarnation of my uncle, then I certainly didn't want to kill it. So you can change by putting, perceiving it in a different category changes what type of uh, urge or impulse will uh, arise in terms of how you deal with it. Definitely. That's part of mind training. That's what Lojong is about. Change your attitudes. Change the categories with which we uh, um, conceptualize things. Okay, so then let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. <coughs> 